Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As a pastor, part of what comes with that job or that calling is burden. In one sense, it's just an ongoing, continuous burden for the people that God has called you to shepherd over. As a pastor, you understand that ultimately he is the chief shepherd. And we have simply as pastors been given a responsibility as an under-shepherd to watch out for and care for the spiritual well-being of the people that God has entrusted you to shepherd. And that brings with it a certain amount of just continuous, ongoing burden. And really nobody other than other pastors can really even relate to that. It's kind of like as a parent, when you have children... Other people can love your kids. Other people can be involved in your kids' lives. But there's not anybody that carries the burden for your children like you do. It's like that as a pastor. There's just a unique burden that God gives you for the people that you shepherd. But then there are seasons when God intensifies that burden or gives you a specific burden about your particular fellowship. And that's really what I want to share with you this morning as I begin, something that God over the last few weeks as we've been away has really put on my heart by way of a burden for us as a church. As I have watched, like I'm sure you have watched in the news, on television, and the internet, our culture convults with violence, hatred, anger, confusion, frustration, hurt, pain, and tragedy. I have realized and become even more aware of the unique burden that one possesses when the church that God has called you to pastor is multicultural. We're in a multicultural church, a multi-ethnic church. In my opinion, it is one of the most beautiful things about this fellowship. One of the most beautiful things about this church is on Sunday morning, it looks like somebody dumped out a bag of Skittles, right? I mean, we just, everything. And, and, and some of you know this, some of you don't. We have over 45 languages that we know of spoken in our fellowship. 
So when I say multicultural, I'm not just talking about cultures within America. I'm talking about cultures from all over the world. And what God has birthed here is an expression of the difference the gospel makes in the lives of people, uniting us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But in the midst of a crisis that our culture is going through, I was reminded even more so of a statement that a friend of mine recently made. He said, pastoring a multi-ethnic church often means it's also multi-theological and multi-political. This makes it (laughs) multi-difficult. I mean, let's just be honest. Because we are so many cultures woven together in the body of Christ to be this beautiful fabric that is a demonstration of the gospel impacting and invading humanity. We all bring with it backgrounds and past experiences and cultural upbringings. And that provides a lot of different perspectives in our fellowship. There are some churches you can be a part of and everybody in the church watches the same news broadcast and everybody in the church always votes the same way and everybody always sees everything the same from the same perspective. But when you get in a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, there's a lot of perspectives on these issues and these issues are complex. And here's the burden. I really believe That we are in the middle of something in our culture that as a fellowship is going to test our metal as a multicultural church. It's easy. It's easy to sit next to someone and sing some songs on Sunday. But it's a totally different deal. To love one another when culture is doing everything it can do to rip us apart. And I really believe, I really believe that in the middle of this season, it's going to test us. I mean, just look around you. A lot of cultures, a lot of perspectives sitting in this room. And yet, we are one body in Christ. And listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 13. Jesus said it this way. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have what? Love for, say it out loud. It's easy to sit in here and sing. It's easy to share a row with some people from another culture. But it's a game changer when you and I begin to live out genuine, Christ-like, sacrificial, unconditional, heart-serving love for one another as the body of Christ. And when we begin to demonstrate that specifically in the midst of a crisis like we're facing in our country right now, then the world says, you know what? There's something about this gospel that I need to hear because it's changing people from the inside out. So, this morning, 
before I begin the sermon, all right? I'm not to that part yet. All this is free. I'm going to get to a sermon in a minute. But I want to share with you four ways we can respond together. Here's the first one. We can pray. I know you think that's what you're supposed to say. But don't forget this. You and I, because of Jesus, have an audience with the one who controls everything. When you woke up this morning because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you have an invitation to enter directly into the throne room of the God of heaven and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Here's what we can do as the body of Christ. When we see crisis, when we see cultural war, you and I can grab a hold of the altar of God and we can ask God to do what only God can do. We can pray. So here's what we're going to do. This weekend and next weekend, we're going to talk about what it looks like to pray together, and we're going to pray together. We're going to go before our Father. I love Ian Bounds is a great Christian author on the subject of prayer. Listen to what he said about about prayer. He said, when God's house on earth is a house of prayer, then God's house in heaven is busy. We need to pray. Tell you a second thing we can do. We can remember this world is not our home. <laughs> That's a good place to say amen this morning. Amen. Hey, this world's not our home. We are simply passing through. Sometimes we look at all this stuff around us and we get so overwhelmed, but we need to remember this is not our home. So for the next Five weeks beginning August 21st, we're going to study together about heaven. Say, why would you do that in the midst of all that's going on in our culture? Why? Here, let me tell you why. Because what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2, look what he said. He said, set your mind on things. What? That phrase, set your mind, it literally means be intentional about directing your attention and directing your thoughts. Here's what's happening right now in our culture. Our culture is fighting for our attention through the news media, through social media, through what you're seeing on the internet. Our culture is is fighting to gain our attention and to capture our heart and to suck us into what's going on around us. But Paul says, hey, we got to be intentional to remember this is not the end. We have a home that is being prepared for us. We have a, a, a heaven that we are headed to. So for five weeks, we're going to dig deep and we're going to study about heaven. Look what he went on to say. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died. What a great statement. It's about identity. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know what I found? Dead people don't get upset. That's going to hit some of you at lunch. You're going to say, you know what, honey? He's right. I've never seen an upset dead person. The problem with a lot of us is we've forgotten we're dead. We've died with Christ. And our life is hidden with Christ in God. We can set our mind on things above. One of the things that I love 
about the way God's gifted his church. God has given us many things. One of the beautiful things God gave us is music. And throughout the centuries, God has given his people songs that in the midst of crisis enable them to just set their mind on things above. And I've asked Teddy to come and sing one of those for us this morning. Be done with the troubles of the world, troubles of the world, troubles of the world. Soon the be done with the troubles of the world. Going home to live with God. Soon will be done with the troubles of the world, oh, the troubles of the world, the troubles of the world, soon will be done with the troubles of the world, going home to live with God no more, weeping and wailing no more, weeping and wailing no more, weeping and wailing, going home to live with God. I'm so glad that soon be done with the troubles of the world. No more fighting troubles of the world. Troubles of this world soon will be done oh the troubles of this world going home to live we
Amen. We can remember this world's not our home. Amen. Here's the third thing we can do. We can establish a biblical worldview on issues facing our society. Here's what I mean by that. Our worldview is not to be shaped by our past. Our worldview is not to be shaped by our culture. Our worldview is not even to be shaped by our experience. We are to allow our worldview to be shaped by the Word of God. We are people of the book. We're to let God's word establish our worldview. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish this series on heaven. And in October, we're going to begin a series for a few weeks surrounding the gospel and culture. We're going to address some of these issues that are plaguing our society right now. And we're going to look at what God's word has to say about those things. So here's what I ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take the next several weeks and a couple of months and you be praying for our pastoral team as we talk to people, as we read God's word, as we pray, as we try to bring some biblical principles to some of these issues that are facing us so that we can do what that says. We can establish a biblical worldview. And let me give you just an example of what I'm talking about. When you hear the word us. Don't answer out loud. But when you hear the word us, what comes to your mind? A lot of us them conversation in the news. When you hear the word us, what comes to your mind? Let me let you in on a biblical worldview principle. There's only one us. And here's the us. The us is those who through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection have been born again into the family of God. And now we are brothers and sisters in Christ who will spend eternity together. That is us. That's us. And there's only, from a biblical perspective, one them. And them are those who are not us. <laughs> They've yet to experience the life-changing message of the gospel. And here's the reality. Our relationship with us and our relationship with them can be described with the same word. Love. We're to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and let the love of Jesus live through us in a way that is radical and sacrificial and unselfish. But we're also to love them who don't know Jesus of every race and color and creed and country around the world. We're to love every one of them so that through us and through our love for them, the gospel of Jesus Christ can walk over the bridge of that relationship so them can become us. I know that's not the best English, but it's good theology. What is that? That's a biblical worldview. You know what we've done? We've let society suck us into all this conversation and we've put ourselves in all these groups. Listen, there's us 
brothers and sisters in Christ. There's them who don't know him. And our responsibility to both is to love them. Fourth thing we can do. We can be very careful with social media. (gasps) Let it sink in. Listen, you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ in this fellowship who come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences. Now, here's what that means. And if you don't get this, you're living in ignorance. You and I may say something that may be right in what we're saying, but because of someone else's culture and experience and background, they're hearing what you're saying totally differently. And part of us being multicultural is caring enough to understand that and doing a lot more listening before posting. You say, that's not in the Bible. It is. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. James chapter 1, verse 19. Look what it says. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be, say it right here, quick to hear. What's that? A lot of listening. Do that first. Do that fast. Be quick to hear. Listen. Listen beyond the words to the hurt. Listen. Slow to. In the Greek, that means post. I just made that up. I'm kidding. But that's what it intends. That's a mechanism through which we now speak. It's how we make our voice heard. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. You know the problem? We're really quick to speak with the advent of social media. And you got brothers and sisters in Christ that are following you. And they don't have the relational context to hear what you're saying. So let's be slow to speak. And then look what it says. Slow to what? You know what social media is? It's a place that a lot of people vent. Anger. And we do it without even thinking. Because why? Look at this. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Here's what that means. My spewing on social media in anger without considering my brothers and sisters in Christ and developing the relational context to have those conversations cannot, will not, never will accomplish the purposes of God. Can't. That's straight from Scripture. Slow. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, taught me this, and it's a great principle. When in doubt, don't. Just when in doubt, don't. And if you're not sure, ask two or three people before you do. Let them be a filter for you. If all that makes sense, say amen. I just, I came back with this burden. I want you to hear my heart. And I want you to know, as pastors, we're going to do everything we can over the next several weeks and months to navigate through some of this and bring you biblical content so we can all wrestle with it together. But here's what we all need to do. 
We need to have a lot more conversation with each other. A lot more conversation where we just say, hey, man, I love you, you love me. I did this this week with some friends in this fellowship. Hey, I love you, you love me. They're from another culture. Help me understand. Help me understand what's being said in this arena or that arena. And then they said, well, tell us what's being said. And, and it just the conversation gave us a depth of understanding with one another that I'd never had before. These are friends, but we're just talking about these things. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to begin this morning by talking for just the next few minutes about prayer. I want to begin with this quote by E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds, one of the greatest writers on prayer in the history of the church. Listen to what he said. The life, power, and glory of the church is in prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer. And the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. What a great statement. That statement really sums up the entire story of Hope Church. Our 15-year existence could be wrapped up into that simple statement. When we together as a fellowship have sought God in prayer, we have experienced God in power. Let me say that again. When we as a fellowship have sought God in prayer, we have experienced God in power. But the opposite is just as true. When we've tried to accomplish things in our own strength, Without seeking God as a fellowship, we have fallen flat on our faces. We need to pray. When God birthed our church, he birthed it with a rally cry that was really what drove us the entire first year as a fellowship. It's why we prayer walked 50,000 households on the south end of Las Vegas before we ever had our first church service. Here was the rally cry. We don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work, then God works. We think prayer is this little thing we tag on at the beginning and the end before we get on to the real stuff that we need to be doing. And to make it spiritual, we begin it and end it in prayer. But the reality is we don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work, and then God works in ways that you and I could have never imagined. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read you a little paragraph out of Scripture where Paul is writing about this issue. Paul's writing to a leader of one of the early churches in the New Testament, and he's writing to them about the context of prayer. And in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 2, Paul gives basically a little paragraph summary of the entire story of the Bible. I call it the cliff notes of the Bible. When I was in school and high school and stuff, I, I did some things that I know teachers are going to frown upon, but when they gave us that book to read that was about that thick, somebody tipped me off that they have this little thing called cliff notes. It's about that thick. Ours always had a yellow, color with, a yellow cover with black writing on these cliff notes, and you could get that and get a lot of the contents, kind of the, the executive summary of the book. Now, I'm not condoning that, students. I'm confessing it as the waywardness of my past, all right? So if you're a teacher, don't come up to me at the guest center and tell me how I did it. Listen, I know it was wrong, but I did it. Well, what we're reading here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the Cliff Notes version of the whole story of the Bible. Let me show it to you. First, we see God's heart towards every person. Look at verse 3. 
It said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is that? It's God's heart for every person. The Bible says there it's his desire. It's a word that means will or purpose. God's purpose is to bring every person on planet Earth into a relationship with himself. And he said, all men. It's God's desire that all men be saved, meaning men and women, young and old, black and white, and all over the world, cultures and colors. God's desire desire is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that's not a universalistic belief that all men will be saved, but it's expressing the desire of the heart of God who desires every human being to come to know him. Look at the next two verses, verses five and six. For there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. What's that? That's God's gift to every person. You see, God doesn't just desire for all of us to be saved. God, through Jesus, has made it possible that we can come to know him. See, here's the reality of the gospel. The Bible teaches us that every one of us have sinned against God. It starts with that story in the book of Genesis. We broke God's law, and because of our sin, we were separated from a relationship with God. There was nothing we could do to earn it, nothing we could do to merit it, nothing we could do to deserve it. Our sin broke our fellowship relationship with God. But God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He loved us so much that he did for us what we couldn't do on our own. He sent his only son, Jesus, into the world. God took on humanity, lived a sinless life, offered his body on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And on the cross, Jesus died for my sin. But he didn't just stay dead. Amen. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for my sin. Now, by faith, I can receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm born again into relationship with God. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen? Now, here's what Paul says. God God desires all men to be saved. God's now made it possible for all men to be saved. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, we see God's mission to tell every person. Paul says, for this, that little phrase means for this purpose, for this reason, I was appointed, that means to be set apart, a preacher and an apostle. Here's what Paul said. Because God desires everybody to come to know him, and God's made it possible through Jesus for everybody to come to know him, Paul said, there's my purpose. I exist to tell everybody I know how they can come to know Jesus through a relationship with him. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, what does all this have to do with prayer? You said you're going to talk to us about prayer. And you're talking to us about the eternal story of God, that God loves us, God's given his son that we can know him, and now we're on mission to tell the world about him. Well, if you'll look at this paragraph that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, everything we just read is sandwiched in between two exhortations to pray. Look at it. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of what? What does it say? Oh, listen, that's what he's going to say in a couple of verses. God desires all men to be saved. Okay, so first of all, here's where we're going to start. Petitions. 
prayers, entreaties, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, now jump down to verse 8 as he finishes this paragraph about the eternal redemptive story of God. Look at verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to what? Say it out loud. Pray. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You know what this is? This is God's process to reach every person. You see, God's purpose is to bring people into a relationship with himself through the provision of his son. But in his sovereignty, God has chosen to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. Yes! God is on a mission in this world. But here's what this text says. The mission of God is running on the rails of the prayers of his people. Let me show it to you in a quote by a man named Andrew Murray. Listen to what he said. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. That sentence alone ought to stop us in our tracks. You're not happy with the way the world's going? God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. God said in 2 Chronicles, if my people will, then I will. Then look what he said. That God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. He waits for them. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God needs us. He doesn't. He's God. When you are God, that means you can do things however you choose to do them. It goes with the office. Amen? He's God. It means he's sovereign. It means he's in absolute control. But here's what the scripture teaches us. That God in his sovereignty has chosen the vehicle through which he is going to accomplish his mission on this earth is the prayers of his people. So out of these verses, I want to ask two questions and we're done. Number one, how important is prayer? How important is prayer? Well, Paul uses three phrases in these verses to tell us how important it is. Look back at verse number one. He begins with that phrase, first of all. And in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it's an emphatic verb. Here's what that means. Paul wasn't talking like this. First of all... No, he was strongly communicating. He said, wait a minute, let's get first things first. Yeah, I'm about to talk about the fact that we have a God that loves the peoples of the world. I'm about to talk about the fact that this God gave his son so that they could all know him. I'm about to tell you that God set us apart to be missionaries, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But let me tell you above everything else, we must Pray. First of all, above all else. Second phrase he uses. He says, first of all, then, I urge. Understand this about Paul. He was an apostle. 
in the early church, what that meant was he was someone who'd visibly seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was someone who is going to be used to write parts of the New Testament. And he was someone that was given to the early church to establish the New Testament church that would accomplish God's mission in the world. Which meant, as an apostle, Paul could show up at any church at any time, and he was in charge. So he could have walked into this church that he was writing to and said, "Um, I command you to pray. And they'd have had to listen, because he was an apostle. But Paul here does not command them to pray. He didn't say, first of all then, I command you to pray. He said, first of all then, I beg you to pray. It's the word urge. It's pleading with. It's coming alongside and calling somebody to action. It's the the picture of the coach in the locker room before he sends the team out onto the field as he gathers them around him and he's inspiring them. Here Paul was not speaking from his position of authority. He was speaking from the passion of his heart. I beg you, above everything else that you do as a church, I beg you to pray. Then he uses... A third phrase, look down at verse 8. If you've got your Bible open, what is the first word in verse 8? Say it out loud. Therefore. Therefore. Now, if you've been at hope for any length of time at all, you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again until you're sick of hearing me say it because I want you to see it every time you see that word in the New Testament. Whenever you see the word therefore in the New Testament, you need to look and see what it's there for. <laughs> right? <laughs> because... The word therefore in the Greek language is a word of significant transition. Here's what the word therefore really means. Based on what I've just said, now I would like to draw or make this conclusion. So as Paul begins verse 8, he says, therefore, based on what I've just said, let me give you a conclusion. What did he just say? He just said, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He just said, God gave his son Jesus one mediator between God and man so that every person could be saved. He just said, God has set us apart to go be missionaries and proclaimers of the gospel so that everyone can come to know him. Based on that, therefore, I want you to go share the gospel with everybody you find. Is that what he said in verse 8? No. I want you to get in a room and come up with a plan and a strategy to penetrate the lostness of your culture. Is that what he said? No, I want you to write a new track that will include ways that will communicate the gospel to a contemporary audience. Is that what he said? No. He said, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Why do you think he singled out the men? He opened in the beginning by just saying everybody needs to pray. But at the end of the paragraph, he's he's zeroing the target on the men. You me tell you why I think he did. You get in most churches and you dig deep and you find the prayer ministry. You know who it usually is? It's usually women. And here's what Paul knew. If the men are praying, I promise you the women will be. I want the men, he said, lifting up holy hands, speaking about the integrity of one's life. 
without wrath and dissension, communicating the, the unity that was to exist in the fellowship through the gospel. Paul said, I want everyone to pray. Here's the point. A.J. Gordon said it this way. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Second question. We're done. How should we pray? How should we pray? Well, Paul gives us some instruction in verse 1. He uses four different words for prayer. And these four different words are not just Paul repeating himself. Each of these words carries with it some weight in understanding what prayer is to look like and be like. For example, we should pray urgently. The first word Paul uses, he says, first of all then, I urge that entreaties. An entreaty is a prayer that arises from a sense of need. Knowing what is lacking, we plead with God to supply it. I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you in the quiet of your own heart to be honest before God. When you think about your prayer life, can you describe it with the word urgency? Paul says, above everything else you do, I'm begging you. We must pray with a sense of urgency. As you and I look out on the brokenness of our world and our society, we should be driven to our knees in a sense of urgency. Let me ask you a question. When you see the TV news, when you see there's another this or that going on out there, What's your first response? What's your first reaction? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it contempt? Here's what Paul is reminding us. As followers of Jesus Christ, when we see that stuff, there should be an urgency in our response to get on our knees and beg God to move. Here's what I'm saying. Legislation will not change men's hearts. Education will not change men's hearts. Politicians, I don't care which animal you ride on, will not change men's hearts. The only hope for lasting change is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look around you. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change people from the inside out. Those of us who were supposed to be opposed can now be one in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the family of God, loving each other. We should pray with a sense of urgency. Secondly, we should pray with a sense of desperation. We should pray desperately. Paul says entreaties and prayers. The word prayer, it's the most generic term, the most common term in the Bible for praying or crying out to God. Let me ask you a question. Does your prayer life reflect the fact that you are desperate for God? Prayer is motivated by a sense of desperation. I want to prove it to you. When do you pray the most? When you're the most desperate, right? 
I mean, let the doctor call you in the morning and say to you, hey, man, I don't know how to tell you this, but we just got your blood work back, and you got somewhere between two and six weeks to live, and there's not a thing we can do for you. Now, you might not before that moment have been this, but after that moment, let me tell you what you just became. You just became a prayer warrior, and not just you. You blowing up everybody's phone in this building, saying, man, you got to pray. You're calling every small group leader on planet Earth. You're doing everything you can to get people to pray. Why? Because it just got desperate. Vance Havner said this, the tragedy of the hour is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. If you can't look at our world today and understand we need God, I don't know what it's going to take for you. We need God. We just need God to show up. We need God to manifest his presence because everything changes in the presence of God. And we begin to cry out in desperation for God to move. That's the kind of prayer that Paul is calling us to. Number three, we should pray passionately. Third word he uses is the word petitions. It's a word that means to plead in the interest of others without holding back because the one praying understands or is involved with. It's a word that describes prayer born out of a sense of burden. You know what's sad? Some of our biggest problem, you know what it is? We've just been saved too long. Here's what I mean by that. We've forgotten what it's like to be lost. We've forgotten what it's like to wake up on Monday morning with that phone call and not have anybody to turn to. We've forgotten what it's like to walk through a crisis in a family and not have a small group of believers around you to come alongside and encourage and walk with you and do life with you. We've forgotten what it's like to face the same challenges, the same conflicts, the same problems, the same crisis as a lost person and have absolutely nowhere to turn and no hope that there's any solution for any of it. The best thing that could happen for us is just to be reminded of where we came from so with a sense of passion we could begin to plead for God to move in people's lives. The reality is lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. It's not deep and theological, but it's true. What they need is Jesus, and we should have a sense of passion. J. Oswald Sanders said it this way, When God plans to send a revival, he lays a burden for it on the hearts of those who make themselves available to him. Here's the last thing, and we're done. We should pray expectantly. Look the way Paul closes. He said, Entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Thanksgiving. What are we thanking God for? Here's what we're thanking Him for. What He's about to do. When we begin to pray with urgency, when we begin to pray with a sense of desperation, when we begin to pray with a sense of passion, here's what we can do. We can say, God, even though I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't even know where, God, I don't even know what, I thank you that what you're going to do. I thank you in advance for how you're going to move in our country. I thank you in advance for how you're going to move in our city. God, I thank you in advance for how you're going to move in our world. God, I thank you for what you're going to do. Let me, let me close with this verse. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Look at it. This is the confidence 
which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. When we get our heart in line with his heart, and we begin to pray in accordance with the will of God, with a biblical worldview, we can thank God for what he's going to do. Listen, because he said he's going to do it. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to pray. Let's bow together. Father, this morning, we come before you. And Lord, we ask you in this moment to just hear our cry. Lord, as we still our hearts, God, would you give us that sense of urgency? I confess in my own life the absence of urgency and desperation and passion at times in this thing of prayer. Lord, prayer is not only the work, prayer is hard work. God, I pray all over this fellowship today, we would just be honest with you about where we are and where we need to be in this arena of prayer. And here's the way we're going to close our time together this morning. In just a moment, our team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And it's really a song that we can pray the words of the song as we sing it. It's about inviting the Holy Spirit of God to move among us. And we're going to take these steps up here and turn them into like an old-fashioned altar. And if God has birthed burden in your heart, either in the last few weeks or months, or if it's through this message that God's just burdened you to pray, we want to open these steps up like an altar and just invite you to come and begin to cry out to God in prayer. Or maybe you're here and you don't know this Jesus that I've been talking about. You don't have a personal relationship with God. You've never experienced forgiveness through the gospel. God's salvation. If you don't know Jesus, listen to me very carefully. I prayed for you specifically this morning. I didn't know your name. But this morning and this week, I've prayed. God, I pray for people that are going to be here this Sunday that don't know Jesus. That by your Spirit's power, you would draw them to Jesus and save them. I prayed for you today. In just a moment, when we stand to sing this song, if you don't know Jesus and you're ready to give your life to Him, we have pastors that are going to be here at the front. You come to any one of these pastors and simply say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from God's Word how you can become a follower of Jesus. You just come. Just come. That's all you got to do. Just come. For others of you, maybe you want a pastor to pray with you. Maybe there's a job or a health or a family or a relationship burden in your life, and you just like a pastor to pray over you, pray with you. We're here. We'd be honored to. You just come. Maybe you just want to turn your seat into an old-fashioned altar, and you just begin to pray there where you are. Whatever that looks like. God, in this moment, we invite you to speak. Would you bring conviction? Spirit of the living God, would you bring conviction 
that leads to repentance and salvation. Spirit of God, would you bring conviction that leads us to turn areas of our life over to you. God, would you bring conviction that that burdens us to begin to pray like we've never prayed before. God, move among us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.